0: continue our studies in Ecclesiastes. We saw last time that actually in one sense, Ecclesiastes is an antidote to the book of Proverbs, if it's um, reverent to say that. Ted or Gina, I wonder whether I could have the um, radio mic. Thanks very much. On 669, page 669, uh, we begin to, um, thanks very much we begin to look at uh, what the teacher himself, who wrote Ecclesiastes, or uh, well, the, the main substance of Ecclesiastes, has to say. We introduced ourselves to him last week, but now we're going to meet him in person, so to speak. From um, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, As the, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem... I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me, I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. So I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man." I became greater, by far, than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing, my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I took, my heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labour. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, What I'd toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Let's pray. Lord, to have turned from statements of great joy in your word to such a statement of pessimism is is a shock. We ask you, Lord, to help us to understand what this aspect of your truth would teach us, what this man, the teacher, has to tell us. Lord, we ask that you would give us honesty, integrity, openness to your word so that it can speak truth into our hearts. Please help us to do that by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you this morning to exercise your imagination. Imagine with me that you were born very rich. You've been told about your great wealth, but the money is kept in a trust fund until you are 18. And uh, as a very young child, you're given a letter from the bank which explains that if you invest the money wisely, you will be able to live comfortably off the interest for the rest of your life. And every year, as you grow up, you get a brochure explaining and illustrating the, uh, uh, the growth of your wealth. Every year, your wealth seems to be growing nicely and uh, healthily. Every year the uh, bank explains how uh, it might be that you can invest your money when finally you come of age. All's well until you enter your teens. Well, let Anna-Maria, Anna-Maria, do you want to um, just um, whiz Speary and the Christiana through? And then they can, uh, to Sunday school, it's all right. Sunday school's gone, Christiana, that's right. As you enter your teens then, having for years had these uh, uh, regular little notices, a rival brochure begins to arrive on your doorstep from a rebel group of ex-investors. It promises to tell you what the bank is never going to tell you. It actually seems from this brochure that some investors are losing everything. They have no control over it, it's just that the market is totally unpredictable. Indeed, says this, this rebel publication, the bank itself is threatened. And it's not just your bank. Every bank is threatened in this way. The old economy is falling apart, says this brochure. The brochure is full of stories uh, entitled How I Cut My Losses 10 Things Your Bank Manager Won't Tell You. A hundred ways to spend your money before it's too late. It warns darkly that actually the very publication of this brochure is going to accelerate the bank's demise. Those who don't get out while they can will be the biggest losers. And year after year, this rival publication arrives with increasing frequency and ever more persuasive articles as you go through your teens. On the other hand, the bank just churns out its regular annual report. Finally, it's your 18th birthday. Finally, you have control over your birthright. What are you going to do? Will you trust the bankers? Or will you believe the rebels? Will you invest your money in the hope of lifelong steady interest payments? Or will you actually take it out now before it's too late and spend, spend, spend for who knows what tomorrow holds? So that's not just a distant fantasy actually. It's the dilemma of young people up and down the country today. It's the story of their life. Because you see, once long ago, there was a simple story that young people were told. They were told that they could live a happy, prosperous life and finally enjoy the eternal riches of heaven if they just restrained their appetites a little, lived upright moral lives and, so to speak, lived on the interest that would accrue from that. But slowly, actually, that simplistic story has been discredited. First, uh, uh, the idea of God and heaven and hell um, uh, and uh, rewards started to be questioned by these rebels. The reaction of the... uh, uh, the moral bankers, so to speak, those who were encouraging restraint and investment, was um, uh, to say, well, perhaps heaven, uh, God and heavenly rewards may be a little bit more uh, tenuous than we thought, but you will actually reap steady rewards in this life if you just live restrained, chaste, upright lives. In the Victorian era, for instance, um, Uh, The uh, um, moral um, frenzy that went on in the Victorian world was stimulated, partly at least, by the anxiety that there was in society about the loss of confidence in God and heaven. Somehow they felt we've got to keep society together by emphasising the benefits now in this life. In the end, uh, they came up with... uh, One of the great mantras of Victorian society. Virtue is its own reward, they said. But the rebels had smelled blood. Is it really true that restraint and duty and careful self-control is going to reliably yield these steady payments that these moral bankers promise Or actually, is that pious phrase, virtue is its own reward, just a disguise for the fact that the old morality, the old style of living, is completely bankrupt? As um, Mae West said, virtue has its own reward, but no sales at the box office. The Film industry has taken that on board very clearly, haven't they? And today we find that young people are bombarded by the publications of the rebels, the dull, worthy advice of those who say that restraint and duty and virtue will yield lifelong dividends. Has actually given way to to, uh, the overwhelming advice of uh, Douglas Coupland, for instance, who says that you should live hard, die young and leave a good looking (coughs) corpse. One of the most um, cutting of those rebels, those people who say it's not really so, is actually found in the Bible. It's this teacher. Last week we began to get a flavour of his message, didn't we? The first 11 verses of the book introduce him. He says... In this world where I can't see God, he says, there is no such thing as progress. There are no reliable benefits from leading a good life. Like the movements of the sun, he says, life is just repetitive. Like the aimless wanderings of the wind, life is just random. Like rivers flowing into a a sea which never fills Life may seem to have some purpose about it, but actually it achieves nothing. Everything, he says, is meaningless. And as we begin today to look in more detail at this teacher's quest for meaning, we find that he is right up there in the top notch of the most radical sceptics that you could imagine. Verse 13 of chapter 1. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless and are chasing after the wind, he says. I devoted myself to explore by wisdom all that is done under under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. Uh, at, uh, that heavy burden actually may have the sense of, um, of uh, uh, him saying something like, "This is a g- cruel trick God has pray- played on men. He's given us this, this burden, this desire for meaning. But as we search for meaning, we discover they are none. There, there is none. We are God's sick joke." He says, because everything is meaningless. This world, he says, is irrevocably twisted. Consistency and meaning in this world, he says, is entirely lacking. And this proverb, he says, is the most appropriate one of all. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted, he says. But the teacher cannot give up. His quest. The more more he thinks about things, though, the more he gets depressed. He goes back to it again in verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned this too is a chasing after the wind. What should he do then? What should the modern person do, who, like this teacher, just doesn't believe anymore the trite, moralistic sayings of a previous generation? Remember we said last week, he's read Proverbs. He knows the book of Proverbs. And he says, in the end, I don't believe it really works. Well, it's obvious what he should do, isn't it? Just as it was obvious, actually, what that uh, teenager who comes of age should do with their money. Spend, spend, spend. Chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. The very first... A 21st century way, then, this man decides to pursue happiness, immediate pleasures, because he just can't see any bigger meaning in this world. Let's look, first of all, then, at uh, his quest for meaning. We find that uh, in the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 2. It begins, as it begins with so many people, with alcohol. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what is worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. He's self-consciously abandoning any rational thoughts. He says he's guided by wisdom. In other words, he's making a conscious decision. But then he says, I embraced folly consciously. And I decided I would use a mood-enhancing drug as my way of seeking happiness, alcohol. He would be popping ease today. He would be smoking uh, marijuana. He would be going to Prince Harry's parties today. There's actually a lot of uh, anxiety at the moment about alcohol consumption amongst young people. Is it because we introduce them to alcohol at too young an age? People say, "Well, I doubt that." The French have been uh, doing that for centuries. Is it because we don't teach them to drink responsibly? Well, there may be uh, uh, maybe some truth in that. But actually, I am convinced something more important is going on. No, we as a society are are marching down the road that this teacher walked, and sadly. Many people actually don't still allow their minds to be guided by wisdom as they go. They just go blindfolded. And instinctively, they think the only hope that I've got, the only help that I can find will be drugs or alcohol. Perhaps there I will find some happiness. There are a growing line, a number of people in this country who, who, as the um, the line in the uh, uh, song by the cause has it, have a full glass and an empty heart. But the teacher gives up on alcohol. doesn't work. He turns from uh, verse 4 to... Uh, uh, Great domestic projects. Verse 5, for instance. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. The teacher himself says, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Alan Titchmarsh, Carol Smiley, even Lawrence Llewellyn-Bowen are all reincarnations of previous domestic pleasure consultants. This this man has gone for a home makeover on a grand scale. Houses, parks, orchards, vineyards, not for him the little electric fountain in a puddle installed by Charlie Dimmock. No, he's going for something great. Reservoirs, irrigation canals, groves of trees. I wonder actually whether our modern obsession with styling and and restyling our environment is actually driven partly at least by the same emptiness of heart that the teacher had here. More than um, this uh, obsession with domestic projects, he decides he's going to invest in labour-saving devices, doesn't he? I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. You know, uh, slaves were the equivalent of microwaves and uh, Kenwood chefs. Uh, I wonder how many useless labour-saving devices you've got in your cupboard. I own a croissant cutter. You don't ask me, I don't know, I've never used it. A croissant cutter. I'll go for that, he says. Get lots of slaves. Get them to do my work for me and I can sit back and enjoy life. More than that, he pursued wealth. But interestingly, only the sort of wealth that would make him um, uh, conspicuous in his wealth would show everyone how great he was. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. There's keeping up with the Joneses for you, isn't there? Stored up uh, treasure, but only actually as a status symbol. Verse 8 I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and princes. Then he went beyond that from uh, (coughs) seeking his status symbols to uh, uh, pursuing entertainment. Verse 8 again. I acquired men and women, singers. You know, thank God we only have to buy a little entertainment centre that can sit in the corner of the living room. The thought of housing these singers as well as all those slaves, is horrendous, isn't it? We do the same though. And then to complete this pleasurable world, to cap it, he pursues sex as well. Verse 8, I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. See, no instant pleasure seeker is going to be happy with one sexual partner. The teacher teacher claims at least that he could afford a harem of concubines and so he gets it. It wasn't strictly speaking illegal in Old Testament times for kings at least. No different, in fact, from uh, the modern sex tourist or the person who delights to uh, leap into bed with another person every weekend. That's what I'm going for, he says. person who's given up on any idea that there are long-term benefits from leading a self-controlled and disciplined life will inevitably go down that road. It's logical, it's natural. It's almost, in a sense, normal. That's the life the teacher chose. He chose it with devastating logic. He said, if this world is meaningless, then this is what I am going to choose. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, I refused my heart, no pleasure. And as the avant-garde pleasure seekers used to say, the only thing which is forbidden is to forbid. I'm going to go for everything. And he says, let's be clear about this. There's pleasure in it. Verse 10 again. My heart took delight in all my work. This was the reward for all my labour. There is a degree of happiness in this sort of life. See, um, those um, pious Christians and rigid moralists who tried to persuade um, people pursuing that sort of life that there's no happiness in their life at all are rightly um, uh, uh, sneered at. No, there is happiness. My heart took delight in all my work. but there's very little happiness. Or to put it another way, there is not happiness at the very depths of our hearts. Many people are only dimly aware of that, but the teacher has been ruthlessly honest with himself. And so he sees that very, very clearly because through all of this quest that we've looking at we've been looking at he had one fundamental commitment which comes up again and again and again he has committed himself to always keep thinking about his life when he cheered himself with wine he claims that he was still guided by wisdom and he summarizes his life in this way in verse 9 I became greater, far greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. And it is that wisdom, it is that commitment to think clearly about his life that leads him to a terrible conclusion. Verse 11. But when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The question that I have for our modern world is, will we have the honesty and the courage to face up to that? Some of you may know about Michael Hutchins, the lead singer of uh, Inksis, who was um, more committed than most to uh, instant pleasure he finally took his life in 1997 and a little later sadly his his lover Paula Yates who you may more of you may have heard of also died the lyrics of one of the Inksis songs song entitled searching go like this I am searching I am not alone, I am searching, please give me some. We've lost direction, washed our hand of blood, I'm in need of sensation. Is there more to this love? Saw a mother screaming, she'd lost control of what she once believed in. She's not alone you could face the pain, and I could do the same, it could be clear tomorrow. But will it start? Will it start again? I'm searching. I'm not alone. I'm searching. Michael Hutchins knew that the road that he was walking down was a dead end. Sometimes we ourselves have to walk that road for a while, as the teacher did, before we realise that. But the further we walk down it, actually, before coming to our senses, the more painful it is, to turn back. And the brutal truth is some people never do. Some end their lives intentionally as Michael Hutchins did. Many others shorten their lives by the excesses of that lifestyle and others just, just never find the courage to face up to their end and just choose to stop thinking because they know thinking sends you crazy. It certainly does, says the teacher. And if we stop thinking, we are not really human at all, are we? It's fundamental to who we are that we need to think, we need to analyse, we need to ask, what is the real purpose of this? If we don't do that, we are just animals. Once again, the teacher, you see, has led us to a dead end. And he hasn't shown really shown us the way out. Saw so last week his teaching is designed as a, as a goad. It's designed to draw blood. And draw blood, he does, if we are honest. That wound that the writer to the Ecclesiastes has only one healer. Ecclesiastes does not heal us. Jesus does. Jesus himself drew attention to the same truths that this teacher is talking about. Matthew 16, he said, "'What good will it be for a man "'if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul?' But Jesus actually supremely wanted not just to ask that negative question, he wanted to give us a, a, a bigger vision of this, this, this uh, world where God is so difficult to find, where meaning is so difficult to find. He wanted to call us to go right back to the beginning, right back to that simple story that the little child was told at the beginning of their life. He's, t- he's brought us to the abyss of the consequences of the life that we live now, and now Jesus says, why don't you re-examine? Could there be a God after all? Could there be a heaven and a hell? Could there be something beyond this confusing, meaningless world? Because as the teacher says, if there isn't, we are absolutely lost. Jesus says there is. Jesus said it again and again and again. The truth that we discarded as too simplistic, he says, though there are confusing things in this world, it is true. And he says, invest in that eternity, invest in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Life in this world under the sun is chaotic, says Jesus. Natural disasters happened, like moth and <coughs> rust. Human malevolence sometimes rule. Thieves do break in and steal. That is the world we live in. But heaven, he says, is a solid reality which is absolutely different. Of course we can't see it. Of course it's difficult to believe in it, he says. But it exists. He rose from the dead to prove that there is life after life. He tells us, invest in that he's not calling us to give up all the pleasures that the teacher uh, indulged in you see the preacher's the teacher's problem was that he pursued those pleasures as his as his ultimate end as his only interest as his only hope and if those pleasures are our only hope they always 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 fall apart in our hands Only when we've started to see the bigger picture of the real world in which we live, where there is a heaven and a hell, and where heaven is a place of absolute justice and joy and satisfaction. Only when we see that world can we start to see the purpose of life. Like wise investors, Jesus says, You may have to sometimes forego the odd short-term pleasure. But you're investing for eternal dividends. So, says Jesus, where will you invest? Now that we've seen this world portrayed so clearly, See, Michael Hutchins spoke of the pain of living in this this dead end world didn't he It's a pain that the New Testament knows all about actually Paul uh, tells us the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 that God had a purpose in allowing this world to be like this he says the creation was subjected to frustration literally that's the same word as the writer to ecclesiastes means says which when it's translated meaninglessness The creation was subjected to meaninglessness, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He says the children of God can have a glorious freedom now and actually that just anticipates the glorious freedom that one day the whole of his creation will have when God makes the new heaven and the new earth. God allows us to feel that meaninglessness so that we will put our hope where it really can yield solid results. So where will you invest? Where will you go to find your deepest satisfaction? Most of the world, frankly, is walking down the path of the teacher. A large proportion have not seen where that road goes. We have seen it. Where will we invest? There is no escaping it. If we do not invest in heaven, we lose everything. That's pray. Perhaps you're aware that you've made choices that have taken you down this this path. That your ultimate hopes were only invested in the pleasures of the moment. Perhaps you need to pray, speak to God right now. Perhaps you're a Christian who's grown tired of, of investing in eternity An attempted to turn away. Perhaps before the Lord you need to remind yourself where real joy and satisfaction is found. Our loving Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that hope does not disappoint us because you have poured out your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would give us now confident hope, by giving us a taste of Yourself, Your love, by the work of Your Holy Spirit. We confess that without that, without that touch from You, Lord, we are as miserable as the most miserable in this world. So, Lord, we pray, reassure us, encourage us, help us to flee those things which would turn us away from you and to cling to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.